Hello and welcome to the Steal My Name podcast. I'm your host, Bob Barrow. Time for episode 24, which I have just not been able to sit down and record, given why this is coming so late. I have been struggling like mad. And I think for anybody that's like, obviously, everything's fucking crazy right now. So everybody's having trouble. No matter no matter what your specific trouble might be, chances are it's probably quite inflamed right now. But I found at least for myself to get a little personal, but hey, why not? It's my show. With anxiety and with the the medication that I take for it, while it is wonderful and has allowed me to kind of re-enter the world, as you might say, and, you know, be able to go into a store without an overwhelming sense of panic, there are times when I forget now because the meds do give me a bit of this even keel that I don't get super wound up about stuff anymore. And that can also mean that I don't stay as focused as easily anymore on getting stuff done. It means, though, it's about relearning or, you know, not even relearning, is learning a new set of skills to keep oneself motivated and busy. So that's why this is late. I am still, it's still, uh, they were warned month. I'm still going to work to get all four of the episodes out this month. I apologize that it's late. I have just not been able to get my, my head straight. Uh, until today. So, so welcome. Welcome to episode 24. They Were Warned Month continues. And this episode, I want to talk about one of the great characters in horror that their whole job is basically to be ignored in one way or the other. And that is the Harbinger. So many horror films and horror stories have a character like the Harbinger. And you could say it goes all the way back to to early fic to early horror fiction even early horror movies you know the villagers telling you know the characters that are showing up to frankenstein's castle or dracula's castle you know don't go over there stay away it's cursed they don't pay their phone bills whatever that's a harbinger that is a character that is somebody that is put in the main character's way to deliver some kind of a warning and I'm sure this stuff goes all the way back through literature, and the Harbinger can show up in non-horror genres. But for my love and for what we talk about mostly on this show, we're going to talk about two very different uses of the Harbinger carrot trope, because it would be easy to do something like Friday the 13th, and that was on my list. You know, Crazy Ralph is an excellent example of the Harbinger trope. You know, it's got a death curse on it. You know, telling the kids to stay away from Crystal Lake. Ah, but he's just an old kook. You know, no one listens to Frank or to Ralph. Crazy Frank? Crazy Ralph? Thanks, Crazy Ralph. And then they all die because of it. So I wanted to take a slightly different approach and look at two different uses to continually overuse the word different uses of the Harbinger trope. And also get to talk about one movie that I haven't talked about before, but is near and dear to my heart, and another one that I never get tired of talking about. So we're going to start with Children of the Corn, directed by Fritz Kirsch, sorry about that, from 1984. Synopsis. A young couple is trapped in a remote town where a dangerous religious cult of children believes that everyone over age 18 must be killed. Yeah, that that tracks. That's... It's super grim synopsis. I think that with 
with the first of anything that you have, it's always going to be special. Whether it's the first few bands that you find in a new musical genre, or the first few places you go on vacation as a kid, you know, the, the first few books that you choose. And when I say like, you know, bands and books and movies and stuff, it's things that you choose and things that are just kind of chosen for you, stuff that's always been there. You know, the places you go on holidays as a kid are always going to seem bigger and more wonderful in some ways than the places you go as an adult. You know, your first love or first loves are all like as other people are always going to occupy a different place in your heart than other relationships going forward. You know, the, the, that's just, I like to think that's just the first, the rules of firsts, as I would put it. With Children of the Corn, after Hellraiser, it was one of the first horror movies that I saw. I saw it before Freddy, before Jason, Leatherface, the tall man, before any of those guys, I found my way to Gatlin, Nebraska. And it came about because, you know, I was brand new to horror. I was in the video store with my parents and we're walking around the video store. I'm like, I don't know what to do. I'm in this wonderful world now of horror. Where do you go? There's so many choices. There's films I'd heard of and were kind of on my to-watch list, stuff like Freddy and Jason. Obviously, we knew who Freddy Krueger was and who Jason Voorhees was as kids. But I didn't, I still needed some guidance. So I'm in the video store with my mom and dad. And it was my mom that said, Ooh, Children of the Corn was creepy. You should get that. And, you know, ooh, like my mom was just starting to come around to the idea of me being into horror and starting to tell me about her hidden love of horror as a kid as well. So that was really powerful moment for me that it wasn't just something I was into. It was something that we were now kind of sharing. She didn't sit and watch these with me very often, but it was, you know, my dad inadvertently gave me Hellraiser and opened the doors and for me, you know, opened the box, as you might say. And then my mom immediately followed that up with Children of the Corn. And I was obsessed. In hindsight, it's actually funny to think about it because I don't, know if I would have, if I was a kid now, be kind of given the same freedom of expression that I was allowed to just kind of burst at the seams creatively with this. When I, to get off Children of the Corn for a second, when I was in the sixth grade and I saw Hellraiser 3 and it became my life, we had to do a creative writing assignment in, in class. And my teacher, Mr. Chapman, a lovely man, but strict, old school kind of guy. You look at him and go, you're cut from an old cloth. And everyone's writing these stories. So I just ripped off the Hellraiser 3 plot. It was, I have it somewhere and I want to find it because I'm sure it's hilarious. And it's in the story. It's about, you know, the professors are trying to, scientists are trying to wake up Pinhead and he proceeds to eviscerate everyone in this lab, jamming microscopes through their heads and stuff and all this gory detail. And I handed this story in, in the sixth grade and it came back with a grade on it. You know, no discussion of its content or anything like that. It was just marked on the technical merits of what he was after. Hilarious. When I got into Children of the Corn, 
I had a notebook that inspired by the drawings in the movie, I was like, I could do that too. I was just bursting at the fucking seams with excitement about this movie. So I started drawing pictures of scenes from the first movie and also subsequently two and three, because they were the only other ones I could find. I think might have been the only ones out at the time as well. And it was full. Like I had Corn Bible. Uh, we had a label maker in, in my grade eight classroom. So I printed out Corn Bible back when a label maker was the height of awesome technology. And I even had a couple of passages where I wrote these very grandiose, quasi-biblical statements about he who walks behind the rose and all this shit. And my friends knew about it. Like it was a thing that I did. I was known for doing this weird shit. And I wonder if that would fly now. I don't know. Kids would just be sharing fucking memes about Slender Man, whatever now. So I guess it's, it's more innocent, I guess what I did, but I was obsessed. I was also this, I think along with Hellraiser, now that I think back about it, it makes a lot of sense. It also really lit a fire under me about sequels. I think it's also probably the first horror franchise that I watched in order because I saw Hellraiser 3, 1, and then 2. But this, I rented the first one, was blown away by it. When rented the second one, I'm like, oh my god, it picks up where the other one left off. This is incredible. And then get to the third one, and it's like, oh, they're continuing the story. My mind was fucking blown out my ears. Like, it was melting. I was covered in Bob Bray. Like, and, and now going back... Children of the Corn 2 Final Sacrifices is pretty bad. Like, it's not as bad as the later sequels would get. But, you know, I think Part 3, Urban Harvest, is probably the best of the sequels. It has a lot more going on. It gets pretty silly when he who walks behind the rose is a big rubber monster at the end and eats Charlize Theron. Yes, one of her first on-screen appearances is one of the school kids that uh, Eli brings into the cult. Uh, part four has nothing really to do with He Who Walks Behind the Rose. That's when the mythology kind of faded away and they just kept the title going. But it's still a good, creepy little movie in its own right and has a young Naomi Watts and uh, a good kooky role from Karen Black. So if you're going to watch them, watch the first four. After that, it's just an exercise in patience. It, it's pretty bad. And around the same time as I'm getting so lit up on Children of the Corn, that summer of grade eight, after the sunburn that I talked about last week, or the week before maybe, I'm not sure, they're near our houses in the north end of Peterborough, it kind of just turns into farm fields. So all of us guys got together, me, Aaron, Greg, Sean, Shane, uh, I think that was everybody, Adam might have been there too, and we went to this cornfield. And just spent the whole day just fucking trash this cornfield. In hindsight, I feel awful about it. But we had an absolute blast. But if you're standing in a cornfield and the stalks are bigger than you, it's kind of a creepy place. So that imagery of from watching the movie to then immediately immersing myself in that physical environment, it was just signed, sealed, delivered for me. I, I have a Children of the Corn poster on my wall. That I got it recently, but when I saw it, I was like, well, you got to represent. Like, that's that's original for me. I got to get that. I can't believe I've had that gap in my poster collection. So, enough of my exuberance. As I've talked about before, I believe it was the Maximum Overdrive episode. 
I talked about the kind of the boom time that the 80s were for Stephen King adaptations. Mainly, a lot of stuff coming out of the night shift. And this is another example of another great story and great adaptation that came from King's first short story collection. And something I, honest to God, I've watched this movie dozens of times, and I didn't even notice it until now, that when they're in the car driving at the start of the movie, there's a paperback copy of The Night Shift sitting on the dashboard of their car, which I thought was delightful to see. Now, creepy kids, because when people think about Children of the Corn, you know, they wouldn't immediately think about, ooh, the Harbinger scene. You know, that's just me. That's something that that I think about a lot because that's my brain. But creepy kids have, they've long been a staple in horror. Beyond Children of the Corn, famous example, Village of the Damned and Children of the Damned, its sequel, and The Bad Seed. You know, this idea that kids could turn on on their parents and become this kind of a monstrous figure is hard to pull off, but when it's done right, it's very unsettling. Um, Because kids shouldn't behave this way. Oh, Bloody Birthday. That's another one, and that's a fucking good movie, too. So it's always off-putting to see that, you know. And this adult versus children is... It's a good flip on a traditional horror plot. You know, usually it's young people that are being pursued in some manner, one manner or another, by an older person. You know, or young people are ignored by adults and put in peril. Um, a Nightmare on Elm Street, perfect example. So, that's what's kind of fun about this. And... It's as a film itself, it is very faithful, more faithful than a lot of adaptation, King adaptations to the original story. The the plot follows a similar structure. A couple driving across country stumble upon Gatlin, Nebraska, and find this cult of kids that are worshiping he who walks behind the rose. And that has inspired them to kill all the parents and start their own religion around this. The major change from book to movie is the central couple of Linda Hamilton and Peter Horton. In the book, they're taking this drive to kind of save their relationship and failing miserably at every turn as they drive across the heartland. Here, it's not so much the case. He's starting a new job as a doctor, and they're driving to California to open his practice. There's some bickering that calls back to the story, some bickering between them, but for all intents and purposes, they are a fully functioning team. And I think that was a really good decision to make and a smart one that you have to make when adapting a story like that because the characters in the story are not very likable, especially the guy. He's just a dick. He's a dick to his girl. He's just shitty about everything. So you really don't feel bad when bad stuff starts happening to them. Here... Linda Hamilton and Peter Horton have such a, an easy energy between them. They feel like a real couple. Now, Linda Hamilton's great and everything, but you want these guys to get away. You want them to be okay. You want them to listen to the warnings that they're given. And that's what brings us to the warning for this week, as I said, as I've gotten so roundabout on. But I get very excited about Children of the Corn. And that's The Harbinger. And as I said, from the early days of cinema, we've had harbinger characters, you know, the villagers telling people to stay away from the castle 
all the way up to its deconstruction in Cabin in the Woods and beyond now, now that the archetype has been kind of laid bare for the world to see. Here, the harbinger that they encounter is a gas station owner. Pretty typical. Both harbingers this week happen to be gas station owners. That was not planned. It just worked out wonderfully that way. And the character himself is played delightfully by a great character actor named R.G. Armstrong. And he's not just creepy for creepy's sake. He's a different spin on this. And it shows these two examples this week, Children of the Corn and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, show just how flexible this archetype can be with little tweaks. You know, he has been caught up in this situation that's happened in Gatlin. After all the kids slaughtered their parents and slaughtered all the adults, they left this man, this lonely guy working at his gas station alive in order to keep a steady supply of fuel coming into town and to warn off outsiders. So he has a job to do. He's not just, you know, a kook riding around town trying yelling at people, stay away, stay away. You know, he's part of this narrative. It's what his relationship was with Isaac and Malachi and how that dynamic played out. I don't know. That's a story I'd actually like to read because I think there, that would be a very interesting way to go with a story like this. But what's in a fun and rare twist with the Harbinger trope, because they're usually built around You know, the characters have to ignore the Harbinger for the story to progress. They've been given a chance to turn around, but it's a movie, so they have to go along. Cabin in the Woods explained this beautifully. Here, our heroes actually listen to the Harbinger. They've got, you know, they found the dead kid on the road. It's like, fuck, we got to get to cops. And he's like, no, you don't go to Gatlin. They got religion. They're weird. Got no phone neither. Go up the road to Hemingford. That's what you do. And... They try. They ought, They listen. They take the Harbinger's advice, and they try to, to do the right thing. It's very rare that characters actually listen to the Harbinger, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to use Children of the Corn as an example, because they do. They genuinely try to avoid their doom. Now, obviously, something has to happen. And whether it's he who walks behind the rose or the kids are out messing with road signs or whatever, they end up getting so turned around that they actually cannot physically get to Hemingford. So they have to get, they have to go to Gatlin and wackiness ensues. And over the years, I think the sequels have really tarnished the brand and beyond the, you know, I, I think the first two have definitely have merits. And maybe you could say the first three sequels definitely have merits. But it's become a bit of a joke. Children of the Corn has become a punchline. You know, it was a direct-to-video staple for a lot of years. They were just, once Dimension took over, out, like they only did one good one or two good ones with three and four. It was just crank them out. Hold on to that license, crank them out. And it was a very steady decline. You know, if you were to graph these movies out, you can see that fall pretty easily. But I think what's in the major thing that's unfortunate about that is people forget that the first Children of the Corn is a tight little film. It has an amazingly creepy gothic score. The religious imagery that they use, all of these icons made from 
corn and corn stalks and the leaves and the corn cobs. You know, the blue man up on the cross, this desiccated corpse of the policeman. The the way that they capture this such a barren, desolate landscape, despite the fact that it's blooming and full of life with all this corn, it's fucking creepy. It is genuinely creepy. The the sermons that Isaac gives are upsetting. These kids don't look like actors. They look just like dirty kids that would live in rural Iowa somewhere, rural Nebraska, because to be fair, they're in Nebraska. And that whole thing kind of comes together to create an unsettling experience. And this bewilderment that the main characters have stumbling onto this place where it's completely outside of their ability to process. It seems insane. And they feel insane as they're doing this because the they have no frame of reference. And it quickly goes beyond their control of just kids that have gone insane to, we actually have a supernatural element we have to deal with here that isn't overused in any way. It's, you know, he who walks behind the rose is a is a physical element in the movie. It's not just something they made up. But while it would be played harder in the sequels, here it's more about the impact of extreme ideology on susceptible minds. And I think in a time where we're seeing such a dramatic rise in extreme ideology around the world, it doesn't seem as far-fetched anymore that something like this could happen. You know, it used to just be a cute little horror story. But now, if we turned on the news in 2020, and they were reporting, oh, religious death cult in, you know, rural heartland, kids overthrow and murder all their parents, would anybody really bat an eyelash now? I don't think so. Really. To be fair, it's 2020. No one would be surprised. If Godzilla showed up, would be like, well, it's June. You know, something else had to happen. So, it's a movie I cannot recommend enough. Obviously, I'm biased. Like I said, your firsts of anything are always going to pull more water for you. And this movie has such a huge place in my heart. And I'm sure that I'm looking at some of it through rose-colored glasses. But I think it is genuinely a better movie than a lot of people might give it credit for because of what the sequels did to its legacy. There's also, if you want to look up some Children of the Corn-related stuff, check out Ghoulish Gary Pullen's art. Uh, phenomenal artist. I knew him from when he was working at Rue Morgue, and he's now gone on to... Uh, his own amazingly successful career. And he did some incredible pieces uh, based off of Children of the Corn that are just delightful. So check those out. Watch the first movie. Watch the following three sequels if you're feeling adventurous. But it's that first movie. And they do so many things right. And it's like, as I said, because we're talking about the Harbinger trope, and we talked about the likability of characters in the last episode, that's really important here. Because if the Harbinger had just been a kind of a useless straw man argument, you wouldn't really care when the characters left. If the characters themselves had have stayed just kind of dicks, you wouldn't feel bad or be with them in their struggle. There are so many little tweaks, and so many of them hinge 
on this Harbinger character that it changes the emotional engagement you have with the film. And without using the Harbinger trope that way, you wouldn't have a film that is as rich as it is. You know, obviously the movie doesn't depend on him in any way. He's not as central as the next Harbinger we're going to talk about. But he still plays a very central role, and it all ties together in a great way. So check out Children of the Corn if you haven't seen it. And if you have seen it, watch it again. What do you got to lose? Everyone's got some time on their hands nowadays. And we all need to unwind a little bit. But moving on to our next uh, our next ominous deliverer of the, of the warnings... The Texas Chainsaw Massacre from 1974, directed by Toby Hooper. Do I really need to do a synopsis of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre? I feel like that might be overkill, but you can hear me type. I know you can hear me click the mouse, that little sound you hear from time to time. I'm sure some of you have pieced together that, oh, he's clicking his mouse. And I can't figure out a way to get that sound out of the soundtrack. I try and wait and find pauses so I can click so I can slide my notes up and down or pull up my synopsis, but fuck it, whatever. Okay. For maybe the five people in the world that do not know the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, two siblings and three of their friends en route to visit their grandfather's grave in Texas end up falling victim to a family of cannibalistic psychopaths and must survive the terrors of Leatherface and his family. That's actually a pretty dope synopsis. So just like Evil Dead and maybe more so than Evil Dead, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a fucking legendary film, and it also has a legendary production. It's, you know, the the insanity of making it, baking in the Texas heat, being trapped in that house for that, you know, 27, 28-hour shoot to get the dinner scene done all in one go, you know, Gunnar Hansen's stinky costume, you know, getting money from gangsters to make the movie, and then they took all the profits, you know, it's it's a legendary film, and it's a film that carried real cultural weight and intensity. When I was a kid, no one I knew had seen the movie, but we all knew about it. We had all heard about it. We knew people that had seen it, and they would go, Ooh, you don't want to fuck with that movie. There was this sense that, well, it wasn't real. It was a movie that could hurt you if you weren't careful. And I'm not, this isn't hyperbole. I'm not being grandiose just for dramatic effect here on the microphone. This was a real thing that we felt as kids, you know. And if you asked an adult about the movie, they would react strongly about it if you brought it up. I remember being seven, eight years old and seeing a copy in the video store asking my mom, have you seen the Texas Chainsaw Massacre? And she's like, ho, 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 And they would have a strong, visceral reaction to it. And all that did was confirm all of your wildest hopes and fears about the movie. That this was something that was lurking and laying in wait out there for you. And if you were brave enough, you know, it's like if you're true of heart, it's like passing, it's like a tray you passing through the Southern Oracle in the never ending story. You know, if you were true of heart and brave, you could pass and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre would be there waiting for you if you were fearless enough to pick it up. The first time I saw it, it was my birthday in, uh, in grade eight. And I'd been going through my Children of the Corn phase and Hellraiser stuff, and I was, you know, could have friends who were having a sleepover. It's like, okay, now's the time to 
get some big guns here. Let's let's go all the way. So I asked him, I'm like, can we get Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Friday the 13th? Like, big guns. She says, okay. So I'm so panicked about watching this movie that I invite my friend Shane over, Shane Conlon, and we decide that to prevent any embarrassment of watching this movie with our friends for the first time, we were going to watch it first so that, one, if it was way too scary, they wouldn't see us freak out, and two, we could pretend we'd never rented it and just watch something else. And we watched it and completely blown away by the movie. But it's also a movie that you get more and more out of the older you get and the more that you learn about film because it's a deceptively simple film. It's a movie with next to no gore and on-screen bloodshed, but it's a movie that for 40-plus years, everyone in the world thinks is a wall-to-wall bloodbath that should never be allowed to be seen by anybody. That's the power of what this film did to everybody. It tricked you into imagining what you were seeing. You didn't see any of this stuff. The only time you actually see a chainsaw make contact with someone is when Leatherface cuts his leg at the end of the movie. The rest of the time, everything's off camera. You don't see the hook going to the woman's back. You don't see him put the chainsaw through Franklin. You see angles. You see the side of stuff. You see blood spray. But you never see any of this stuff. And one of the the most shocking revelations to me as I got older was the humor. This incredible streak of just pitch black absurd humor that's in the film. If you've seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, you know that that movie is a lot more intentionally over the top. And that was kind of made by Toby Hooper as a response to people not understanding the humor that he was going for in the first movie. And so uh, by pro- by proxy, he's like, oh, you thought the first movie was super serious and gory? You know, no. Fuck you. So the second movie is super gory and delightfully so. And the humor and the wackiness is way more in your face. It's much more of a comic book. But the first movie is still such a loaded weapon, even as you start to notice the humor that's happening. You know, because the, the film itself... Despite this humor, look what your brother did to the door, you know, all that great stuff. It really feels like you're on a descent into madness. Texas Chainsaw Massacre is part of a new breed of films that were really built to go for the throat. You know, starting, you could say, like the director cinema in the late 60s, early 70s, starting with stuff like Bonnie and Clyde had started to up the levels of intensity and on-screen violence, but really films like Peckinpah's Straw Dogs, Wes Craven's Last House on the Left. These were movies that are really, really going for it. But the Texas Chainsaw Massacre really goes further. And it's a combination of so many little things that came together to build, you know, to load this gun of a film. The movie just looks so hot and shitty. The cooked countryside. These amateur performances that run the gamut from manic and insane and off-putting to just so amateur as to be just casual. And you just feel like you're watching kids. 
you know, the reliance on mood and tone over effects, because there really aren't any. All this combines with, you know, the beautiful desaturated 16 millimeter look combined with this low-key or natural lighting in some cases, using sound design as music, the roar of the fucking chainsaw, and her relentless screaming. Marilyn Burns, one of the great screen queens of all time. All of this comes together to create this film that feels real. It feels, I have to repeat this, it feels incredibly real what you're watching, that this is kind of a document that's happened. And the opening scrawl really doesn't help to uh, assuage, is that the right word? Our terror that this is a real thing. Because the movie tells us it's a real thing. And we, well, there is, well, the movie itself didn't happen. There were no kids chopped up by chainsaws in Texas. It does have roots, like Psycho Before It, and Silence of the Lambs after it, based in real events. I'm sure a lot of people know the inspiration for this. One of the sources came from Ed Gein, the ghoul of Plainsfield, one of America's first serial killers, even though technically he didn't kill enough people. But the inspiration from him came from the, the grave robbing, the leather face idea, because Ed Gein would dig up bodies and make masks and skin suits and furniture and stuff around the house. So so that all came from him. Having that that root in in reality that some people knew about, it just helped further this cult that was built around this film. This idea that it was real. People treated it like it was real, that this actually happened to these kids in Texas. And these guys just went in and documented it. But Talked about the mood, the craziness, the fucking wild wackiness of it all. Let's talk about what we're here to deal with this week, and that's the Harbinger. Now, what's so good here is, well, the main thing is Jim Cito, the cook, our Harbinger, is a complete delight. Toby Hooper has said that he's the only man he's ever met that doesn't need makeup to be scary. He's not wearing any makeup in this film. You know, uh, Ed Neal, who plays the hitchhiker, his performance is, is fucking insane. He has the big birthmark on his face that they put on. Leatherface, obviously, wearing the mask. I'll talk more about Leatherface at the end. But Jim Cito, when we meet him, he's both menacing and very friendly in this kind of rural way that we expect people like that to be. You know, and there's no reason for us to suspect anything of him, that he's being disingenuous with the kids in any way. And he warns them off. He says, you know, it's, ain't no, ain't, ain't going to do you no good to go wandering around other people's property. They don't take kindly to that. So he tries to warn them, but when he finds out it's owned by their father, he's like, oh, it's your daddy's house. Okay. But why don't you still just wait here, get some gas, have some barbecue, you know, just stay out of it. So we get that from him. He fulfills that role. And then that should be it. That character should drop out of the story. And the fact that he is friendly to the kids, he's employing somebody that's obviously handicapped in one way or another, the guy washing the windows, all of this puts us off our guard. We have no reason to suspect that he's involved in any way. He's just, he's done his harbinger role. He's a nice old man at the gas station. That's it. 
So we're not expecting him to come back into the story. Why would we? Harbingers are characters that play a small role and generally don't show back up. Maybe they'll get dispatched, you know, like the character in Children of the Corn. Uh, Crazy Ralph met his end in Friday the 13th Part 2. But that's it. They're, they play a, an in, a small part, an integral part, but it's a small one. They certainly don't turn out to be the villains. And that's one of the great one-two punches of this film. So we've had all this insanity. The kids have been picked off one by one by one. Franklin's been sought up in the woods. Sally's been chased by Leatherface. We're just so fucking wound up. And then she stumbles into the gas station, and there's the cook. And he's nice. He's like, we're going to get you to a phone. We're going to get help. And he goes to get the car and leaves that door open, and she's sitting there doing her twitchy thing. And at any moment, we expect to see Leatherface burst in or to see the cook burst in covered in blood, that's where the movie's been leading us. That's what should happen. That's what should happen to the cook. He's the harbinger. His purpose is done. We sure as hell do not expect to see him come back in with a rope and a sack. That's when the real genius of Jim Cito comes to the surface. And he flips on a dime from playing this kindly old man to this absolutely raving psychopath. And he does it for the rest of the film, where he can't seem to decide between, you know, don't torture the poor girl, don't do any of this to her, and then you see him get progressively more worked up and wound up and involved in the thing. And that's what makes him so terrifying, is because he was the last hope for a stable character. You know, we know the hitchhiker is crazy from minute one. As soon as we met him, we know this guy is not right. Leatherface, we've seen him cut a swath through all of Sally's family and friends. The cook was our last hope. He was really our last hope of a sane character. And because he presents this level of normality and human decency to her and then rips that away and then flip-flops between it for the rest of the film, it just makes it all the more devastating. And leading to, obviously, the infamous dinner scene, which to this day, even when they remade the film, they knew they couldn't do that. They didn't try the hitchhiker scene and they didn't try the dinner scene. Because how do you beat those? Like, you physically can't. The dinner scene was shot in one day. Like, it was a 26 or 27 hour day. But, you know, they're cooking in that room. At one point, Gunnar Hansen actually cut Sally's finger, Marilyn Burns' finger open because the blood gag wouldn't work and stuffed it into John Dugan's mouth who played Grandpa. Like, it's absolutely insane. And it's such, it's such a good flip of the Harbinger trope because it fulfills its role, but it also uses what we know of the role to trick us, to deceive us, put us in a false sense of security. And it just, it shows how flexible that role is. That it doesn't just have to be a creepy one-off person, you know, or a frightened villager or crazy Ralph or things like that. You can go places with it. You know, I think it's there's a direct through line to like House of a Thousand Corpses with Captain Spaulding, where, you know, he tries to warn the kids off and then comes back at the end as a villain. Now we've seen him murder some guys that broke into his store and we knew he's not alright. But it's that's the impact that a character like the cook has had 
Now, it would be, I would be remiss to talk about Texas Chainsaw Massacre without talking about Leatherface, because that's another brilliant performance, and it's one of the things that the remake did really wrong, and I like uh, Marcus Nispel's remake of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's a very brutal, very heavy, very intense film. It does the original proud, but one of the key things they got wrong is Leatherface. One, he should never take off his mask. You just don't. And Andrew Bernarski played him much more like Jason, as this big hulking menace with a chainsaw. One of the primary reasons to not have Leatherface take off his mask is Leatherface doesn't actually exist. His masks are his personality. It's something I didn't notice the first time I saw it. Again, it's a film that rewards repeat viewings because he changes his mask three times. He has, when we first meet him, the killing mask. And he's wearing his uh, his apron and very aggressive homicidal mode. But then when the cook comes back and he has Sally, he's wearing the old woman mask. And he's very submissive and very docile and runs away from him and is just trying to clean up and get the house together. And then the dinner scene, he's wearing the pretty lady mask because he's ready for dinner now. He's going to be dignified. He's got his his good hair on, his good makeup, and he's having dinner with his family and they have a guest in the house. That's what's so brilliant about it. Because Leatherface, whoever he is under that, under those masks, is so broken and disabled and gone. He's just gone. That he is only the masks. He's only other people that he can put on to himself, whoever those faces originally belonged to. And that's brilliant. It's something they didn't follow up in the sequels or in the remakes and then the prequels and various all any other real property the time they've dealt with Leatherface you don't get this these multiple personalities and the the performance that Gunner brought to it Gunner Hansen now Bill Johnson does a great job as the Leatherface in the second movie R.A. Milhoff plays a very aggressive Leatherface in the third movie in Leather in Leatherface, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3. The less said about the fourth movie, the better. But it's it's that performance in this first one that, like I said, there's so many things that come together to make this movie brilliant. But that's part of it. It is a film that you cannot dismiss. You can't just push it out the door and say, oh, it's just another schlocky gore fest. No. It is an insanely accomplished film considering the conditions it was made under it's artful it's intelligent it's intense and there's far more going on than you would expect initially just from its reputation or upon first viewing of it so check it out if you haven't watched it in a while just watch it again and if you've never seen it prepared to have your mind blown because it is near to a perfect horror film as you can get and just near to a perfect film as you can get on to star trek so that brings us with our romp through trek to season two episode five cardassians which aired october 24th 1993 political tensions rise on ds9 when bajorans board the station with a supposedly orphaned cardassian whom they have adopted now 
Other than kind of being in the background of the three-part opener of the season, the Cardassians have been kind of quiet on the show uh, thus far. But here they really come roaring back into the narrative, and the Bajoran v. Cardassian part of it, the occupation, all that, comes back to the forefront. Now, first of all, any episode with Garrick is automatically a great episode. Andrew Robinson is always a delight. You're never disappointed with whatever he has to do in an episode. And here he is his delightfully deceitful, wonderfully charming self, as always. The focus on in this episode is on Cardassian war orphans. These were children that were left behind when Cardassians pulled out of Bajor. Now, whether they were pure blood, I guess, Cardassian children, or they were the result of Bajoran and Cardassians mating and having babies together, that's beside the point. That's what we're focusing on here. And this is something that has happened throughout our own history, orphans being left behind after a war, these lost generations of children. World War II, Vietnam, the, the list is as long as, as human history. It, these chil- children are always left behind in the wake of a, of a large conflict. And they present so many wonderful questions, and it shows just how it, it reaffirms and it holds the center of just how intense Deep Space Nine was going to be with its subject matter, but also does what Trek when at its best, always does. And it's using the science fiction setting to talk about real-world issues and real-world problems, but disguising them in a way that makes it more palatable. These ideas of what would it be like to be raised by your people's enemy? How can you separate that hate that you've had for these people from this child that you've took in? This this young boy who's caught up in all of this, you feel for him because it's obvious that his parents do love him, these adoptive parents, but at the same time, they hate Cardassians. And rightly so, the Cardassians that were on Bajor committed terrible atrocities. But it's not all Cardassians that did that. And they can't, unfortunately, can't separate that hate. So this boy is being raised in an environment where he's being taught, through no fault of his own, to hate who he is and where he came from, which is a devastating thing. Also, what this episode does is we get to see the very, normally the very squeaky clean Federation show racist attitudes. And we never really deal with that before. Everyone is much too evolved for that. And here it's our everyman blue-collar guy. It's O'Brien. Now, in the context of the story, O'Brien has fought the Cardassians before. He served uh, as ground troops in in a war with Cardassia. So he's seen firsthand just how brutal and awful and violent the Cardis, as he calls them, can be. But it's still, it's still troubling to hear him dismiss them as a whole. To see these characters that we, you know, as an audience, we expect so much of them from a moral perspective. And the Federation is supposed to have that ideals. But O'Brien is in a situation where even he realizes that he is completely dismissing every Cardassian out of hand. 
because of the actions of some of their people. Now, does the Cardassian Union as a whole have a problem? Yes, obviously, it's a very corrupt regime. But that doesn't mean that every single person who is Cardassian is evil and awful. And he confronts that in himself. And it's something that he'll struggle with throughout the rest of the series. And with all of this issues and intense stuff going on in typical Cardassian fashion, Galdicott is trying to use the situation to his own advantage and bring down a political opponent. It turns out that he set all this up years ago. Excuse me. Set it all up years ago just in case he would ever need to bring down a, uh, a certain political opponent. So destroyed families, destroyed these kids' lives, just so we had a backup plan somewhere along the way. And it just, the duplicity, the wonderful evil duplicity of Ducat is, is always a joy to watch because he's just so great in the way that he plays that character. You just love to hate him. And he is foiled, obviously. He has to be foiled by Bashir and, and Garrick teaming up. But it's a great episode. It does, it does what Star Trek does best. It does what Deep Space Nine does best. And it continues to push its individuality and its narrative forward. They are standing firm on what the show is going is and what it's going to continue to be. So, great episode. Book. I read Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell from 2008. And this is the third of his books that I have read after Tipping Point and Blink. And this book focuses on what he calls outliers, people, the ultra-successful people. But it's not just like a biography of successful people. It's more of a flipping and digging into the narrative of how they got that way. And the typical no and making us confront these typical notions of success and how we view people that have been ultra successful that, you know, well, it's just hard work and luck. But he really digs in and shows that it's actually a hell of a lot more complicated and Sometimes it's fluke, sometimes it's accident, but there's so many little things that have to come together to get these ultra-successful people to where they are. Um, Just to cite some examples, he starts talking about hockey. Statistically, more people that are professional hockey players are born in the first three months of the year. Statistically, if you're born after August... Your, no matter how good you are, your chances of being a professional hockey player are slim to none. The, and the reason for that is simply, if you're born in January, by the time hockey season comes around in the fall, you're bigger than everybody else. And not just you're bigger, but because you're bigger and the coaches want that, they tend to focus on you just a little bit more. And you get these small little pickups as you go along, and it starts to build. Whereas if you took somebody that was maybe a little smaller and gave them that same attention, they could statistically be just as good of a player, but they don't even bother to look at those smaller kids. They're completely pushed out of the running despite whatever innate potential they might have. He gets into the idea of the 10,000-hour rule, which is a a famous 
I'm sure a famous idea that a lot of people have heard of, the idea that if you want to truly master something, you need to put 10,000 hours of practice into that thing before you become proficient. And he cites several examples. Um, not something I didn't know about was the Beatles. That before they broke, when they were just kind of a bar band out doing their thing, they got an opportunity to go and play the club scene in Hamburg in Germany, or Austria, one of the two. And there, they, you know, you don't get up and play for a couple hours. They were playing six to seven days a week, six to seven hours a night. And they did this for months. And so by the time they got back to England, just because they went and took a job that they didn't quite know all the details of, they had put these 10,000 hours in. A situation like Bill Gates, the odds that his school that he was going to would buy one of the early computer terminals that was available, and that he would also be near a facility that had unlimited server access so he could practice coding and all coalesce at the right point. One of the, when he starts getting into the our cultural legacies and how that builds success, it's fascinating, those sections. Specifically when he talks about Jewish lawyers, because there's there's always such a, a an anti-Semitic streak talking about, oh, you know, Jews, lawyers, run the world, everything, which is just all bullshit. But he explains how and why that worked. And it wasn't just one thing. It was actually a benefit to the racism they were being presented with. Because, you know, when the first wave of them came to, of Jewish people came to the States in the late 1800s, early 1900s, they brought a skill. Because they could only have certain jobs in Europe, a lot of them were tailors or seamstresses or things like that. So when they all came en masse to New York City, they were able to get into the garment trade. Because for years, the garment trade in New York was the center of the world for clothing. So much stuff was manufactured there. And this incredible work ethic that they brought with them allowed them to flourish there. And then, if you are a parent of a child, you don't want them to go through the same struggles, so you send them to law school or to be doctors. Now, when this first group of these children hit school... It was right after World War II, so, or sorry, the Depression in World War II, so you have a lot of empty classrooms, so they now have access to better educational prospects than they would have had. And then when they get out of law school, they're coming into a world where law is a very locked society. You can't get in unless you know somebody. So what's the only kind of law available for them to deal with is corporate takeover, corporate mergers, all this backdoor stuff that the lawyers at the time thought was beneath them. So by the time that that type of law broke out and became incredibly in demand and popular in the 70s, all of these lawyers had been toiling away in obscurity with this type of law, getting in their 10,000 hours. So they were poised to become huge power players. Last example I want to talk about is the stereotype he dives into of all Asians being good at math, which it's it's still a stereotype. It's a you could say a positive one, but it's still a stereotype. But he wanted to answer why. Why is this happened? Because you can track it statistically, a lot of Asian students in other countries or in their own countries excel at math. Why? 
And he traces it all the way back to their agriculture, their work ethic to farm rice is so much more intense than other forms of agriculture. Also, their their language and the way they process and talk about numbers, it's quicker. They're able to visualize and hold more numbers than, than English, French, Spanish, what have you, just based on how their language is built. So you have across, you know, hundreds and thousands of years, all of these things coming together to create an environment where they're much more likely to be successful at math because so much has come together to put them there and get them ready for it. It's a fascinating, fascinating read. Probably the best of the three of his I've read so far. I'm barely scratching the surface. He digs into so much more stuff. But it's this idea that, you know, it's not just simply a matter of, well, if you work hard, you'll succeed. Sometimes no. A lot of times no. There's always so much more happening behind the scenes that you might not even realize, you know, whether it's historically your family, your cultural legacy, being born at the right time of year, or just the right point in time. All of these things come to bear and fascinating. Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. Check it out. Recommendations. Uh, This is easy. Children of the Corn 3. It's my favorite of the sequels. It's campy, it's silly, it's goofy, but it is a good time. And obviously, Friday the 13th. It's it's a great movie, and that is the very stereotypical use of The Harbinger with Crazy Ralph. So check that out. In terms of a book, a bit of a left field uh, one here. Uh, Check out Crystal Lake Memories. It's a gigantic coffee table sized tome about the history of the Friday the 13th franchise. It is exhaustive. It is wonderfully researched. Pretty much anyone that was involved with the franchise in any capacity, if they're alive, they're involved with this book. It's just wonderful. Check it out. Coming next week. This is a kind of a combination of they were warned and getting a chance to kind of address what's going on a little bit in the world right now, uh, especially with the the Black Lives Matter protests and the this kind of willful ignorance that a lot of people have of actually understanding what the term white privilege means and and not getting all bent out of shape about it because it's probably if you're mad about it you probably don't actually understand what it means. So next week I'm going to be or next episode I should say it'll probably be coming quite soon. I'm going to be talking about Rogero Deodato's Cannibal Holocaust. Might not think that that's the kind of movie where you can deal with these heavy social issues, but just like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it's a movie that's a hell of a lot smarter than it seems. Thank you guys for coming to join me for this, uh, for my tour through They Were Worn Month. I know the episodes are coming in a little more scattershot. I hope to correct that. If I can't, I'm glad you're still staying with me regardless. You can find me on Facebook at Steal My Name Cast. You can find me on SoundCloud at the Steal My Name Podcast. Same with on iTunes. 
Please like, subscribe, share, shoot me a message, let me know what you like, what you don't like about what I'm doing. It would mean a lot to me, and it does mean a lot to me for everybody that has listened so far. So once again, thank you, and remember, until next time, to steal someone else's name, because this one is already taken.